We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I am your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Welcome to Transformative Principal. I am so excited to have Ted Dintersmith on the program today. After a career in education, Ted is probably most well-known to educators As the executive producer of the movie, Most Likely to Succeed, uh, the co-author with Tony Wagner of that same book, and the guy who traveled to all 50 states to see what schools could be. So, Ted, welcome to Transformative Principle. Yeah, great to be here. Well, I am excited to talk to you, and I've been a big fan for a long time, and this is a a great opportunity, and I hope everybody is uh, buckled up because I'm sure we're going to talk about some, some crazy awesome things about education. I was, uh, I follow you on Twitter and just a few days ago, you mentioned that education is the only antidote to many of the problems that we're facing today. Can you talk a little bit about how education is the only antidote? Well, I'd say the two things that are ripping our country apart right now, and one is automation, which is advancing at a blistering pace is marginalizing lots and lots of jobs, eliminating lots of jobs, and it's just getting warmed up. And so when you look at an economy where so many of the routine jobs of current day, let alone the future, but so many routine jobs are just going to be gobbled up by machines, what's that mean for any adult in America? What's it mean particularly for kids coming through our school system as they look toward their future? And I think you see that playing out over and over in community after community in our country, where lots of communities have been hollowed out, where the mom and pop stores have been wiped out by Amazon, where the factories have been shut down. 
just massive amounts of alienation and marginalization. I think the second thing is, which I, I was slower to focus on, I mean, the career you know, and economic issues I've been focused on, and I've seen it over my entire career, but I think we're seeing how technology, particularly social media-fueled technology, is making it easier and easier to depict things that never happened, to make people say things they never said, to put people in ugly, horrible lights they don't deserve to be put, put in, all to propagate some false narrative. And you just see that, and, it's, and that, again, is something that we're just getting going on, where within a matter of a few years, I mean, you can, somebody skilled can do it today. They can make either of us say or do the most hideous things in a video, put that on a social media and watch it take off. And we're defenseless, right? I mean, you can do, you can beg for all the fact checking. You can say it was totally, you know, synthetic and not having anything to do with anything we did. Once you see a video like that, you can't get it out of your mind, whether it's an eighth grade girl doing something horrible or a political leader coming across as a complete incoherent drunk, like Nancy Pelosi, that video that got released last week. And so those twin focal points, you know, marginalized people in career, making it harder and harder for people to distinguish between what's true and what's false. These are enormous stress points for our democracy. And so how do you deal with that? I think there's only one way we can prepare people for that world. And it's not, what, what I think is so exciting, it's not just that they can make it a little bit less bad. I think if we educate kids properly, they will be entering into one of the most glorious times our, our nation's ever experienced. And so that the swings between doing same old, same old, leaving, I think, millions vulnerable versus reimagining education and putting kids into a position to capitalize on, on machine intelligence, that's a huge swing factor. And that's what kind of gets me up every morning and makes me do what I do. Yeah. And, you know, right now there's, there's so much that we are doing that is really just wrong, harmful, hurtful to kids in education. And yet nobody, well, there are people, but very few people are interested in changing. One of the things you mentioned in what schools could be is that it's got to be a grassroots effort. Why does it need to be grassroots and not something that, like, why can't our legislators or our superintendents or other leaders lead that charge of changing education? Well, there's, there's sort of what they could do and what they do. And as you know quite well, those, those are very different things. And so, sure, we might just sit around and wait for enlightened state legislators to say these state-mandated tests are garbage and we should trust our teachers. You know, maybe that'll happen in our lifetimes. I'm not sure I'd bet on it. We may sit back and say, we're just one election away from having an incredibly thoughtful, visionary secretary of education in our country. But I mean, hey, look no further than Arne Duncan. And, you know, I was a, an early avid supporter of Barack Obama. I mean, he appointed me to represent the U.S. at the U.N. General Assembly. So I'm an Obama fan, but I really think he blew it when it came to education. And so you realize, and I write about this in my book, that the people who get to the top of these bureaucratic pyramids tend to be bureaucrats. You know, they, they like to manage systems. They rely on data. They love to issue policies to keep bad things from happen, happening instead of setting the conditions in place to let great things happen. I think, by and large, they don't trust our classroom teachers. We've seen that over and over again. And so we want to protect against an occasional bad situation by telling every teacher this is what you should do on every minute of every day of every school year. 
and you, we, we've so, I think, demoralized and, you know, under-supported our teachers. We don't pay them enough. We don't trust them in the classroom. We don't let them create these incredible learning experiences. And I say, to what end, right? I mean, we have kids studying mountains of, of standardized, committee-driven curriculum. And when I ask for any real evidence that they retain what they're studying, the only evidence I ever see indicates they don't retain it. Unless, unless it's an after-school club or a sport or that rare thing where teachers are trusted like kids actually learn by doing and immerse themselves in something they're passionate about and get really good at it. And those are incredibly transformational education experiences. I think that many, many educators could bring to their kids if we just focused on setting up the conditions to let our educators do their best work. But no, instead we say, let's set in place, let's put in place bureaucratic policies. Let's tell everybody what they have to do instead of encouraging them to do I think what they entered the profession to do, which is to engage and inspire children. Yeah, <laughs> there, there's so many things that I want to talk about. One of the things is that idea of, you know, Nick Fisher calls it legislatively digestible uh, is the the types of tests that we give kids is something that's legislatively digestible so that some state legislator can look at a test score and say, that was good or that was bad. And so I was talking to a principal friend of mine and she had to do 45 day plans for preparing for the state test. And so that is a full quarter of the school year that she had to spend uh, making a plan to get kids ready for this test. And then I found out later that when the kids took the test, if they didn't do well enough, they could retake it. And so I was just dumbfounded by how much effort and energy is going into this thing that is only meaningful for a legislator or a somebody else at a, so far removed from the classroom to actually make a determination. And then when it comes time to like suggest that they do something meaningful in their classroom, they say, we don't have time because we have to do this test prep. And how did we get so misguided? And how do we get away from how do we as teachers and principals have get the courage to move away from those things? Well, one thing I've been trying to find and support, you know, I feel like it's time for us to be far more activist in our outlook here. And, you know, these, I've met a ton of state legislators. I mean, when I was in Alaska, I testified in front of the state legislature on these education issues. And, you know, I don't think the legislators wake up in the morning saying, how can we ruin the future of our kids and drive our best teachers out of the profession? I don't think that's what they're intending to do, but that's what they're doing. And they need to understand that. And so, you know, I gave the, the closing keynote at the Deeper Learning Conference in San Diego in March, and I issued this challenge, which honestly, nobody really stepped up to. Um, and I'm still looking. But I'd love to fund people in a state that would just get a massively supported petition in place that says to state legislators, insist, take these state-mandated exams that are keeping kids from graduating from high school, take them with a proctor, and tell us how you did. And I feel like there's sort of a, a cathartic aspect of eating your own cooking. You know, if, if you are insisting that a kid can't get a high school diploma unless they pass a certain test which happens in every state in the, in, the, in the union, then convince us that it's a meaningful test. Take it and tell us how you did. And I think if legislators had to take those tests and report the scores, 
you'd suddenly see them say, well, wait, this test doesn't get at anything important. Wait, these, these math questions are so obscure. You know, no adult uses these, this math that's on the test. These, these language arts questions are silly. You know, like you're asking for, you know, dumbed down thinking about signs of author bias instead of like really explaining what something's telling us. I think they should be called to the carpet on that or called on the carpet, whatever that cliche is. Take the test and tell us how you did. But that's not happening. We just kind of roll along with it. And I think we live in a society of, you know, you mentioned before Twitter, you know, it's like 140 character, 280 character sound bites rule the day. And, and what sound bite is better than education is going well in our state because test scores improved 0.4% or education is going to hell in a handbasket in our state because scores drop by 0.25%. And, and People don't even understand the basic statistics of that. You know, the, there's so much random noise in that. But I think getting at what types of questions are asked on these exams, what types of skills, and I think they're very low-level, narrow skills, but what kind of skills does a student need to develop to do well on these tests? And then ask yourself, is that really preparing these kids for a world of innovation, a world where all the math on these tests can be done by photo math on your smartphone? Why? Why are we having kids spend, you know, grade eight through 12 in math and high school and middle school on stuff that your smartphone does perfectly? I don't understand that. Yeah, I, that's something I certainly don't understand either. And, you know, you talked about the low level, really narrow set of skills that you need to do well in those tests. Even those, those skills are debatable as to whether or not we, we actually need them. So, in my school this year, we did this thing called Synergy, which was this way of giving kids time during the day to do something that we told them they needed to do something to change the world. And there were so many things that were just amazing that kids were able to learn. But what I want to talk about briefly is a couple of groups that said that they wanted to either write a book or write a, a graphic novel. And so these kids were like, so gung-ho about doing this. And they had four hours each week to to spend time working on this. And I got to tell you, Ted, it was amazing watching it. Not because it's exciting to watch people write a book because you know it's not, but to see these kids finally realize that something they want to do, one, they have time to do it. Two, they have a supportive teacher to help them do it. And three, they have to work with other people to do it. Oh my goodness. Now, the best part of this story, Ted, is that these none of these kids finished writing this book or graphic novel because they couldn't figure out the skills they needed to do it. So by the end, they figured out what they needed to be doing, but they didn't ever accomplish their goal. And so some people would say, well, that was a complete waste of instructional time and all that instructional time was lost. My argument is, no, that's the best instruction because those kids went through a process. They struggled at something that was really important to them. And then they ended up failing and they didn't accomplish what they set out to do. Now, they did it in a safe place where the, the bad things that happen when you fail in real life didn't happen. And so they had this wonderful opportunity to experience failure in a way that wasn't going to leave a a huge mark, a black mark in their life. They didn't get an F in a class. It was intentionally ungraded. And so those kinds of different experiences are just amazing for kids to experience. Absolutely. And and you think about one of the telling questions 
I found, um, to, you know, when I visit schools and ask students, I learn so much when I ask them, what are you working on and why? And so often, you know, kids don't even know what they're working on. I mean, their whole daily schedule is a blur of things that they I just, they don't even know. It's like, I, I'm taking some this or the that, and then like, what are you studying specifically? Uh, I don't know. Or, you know, when I say why, far, far too often, it's because I have to. And take what you just described, where kids have an opportunity to creatively, to distinctively come up with a bold initiative to make their world better and then pursue it. You know, that is the most authentic representation of real purpose in education. You ask those kids, whether they're making great progress or some progress are struggling, what are you working on and why? They will tell you, I am sure if I visited those kids this past year in your school, they would know exactly what they're working on. And the why would be because I want to make my world better. I mean, that is incredibly powerful. That's where you draw real intrinsic motivation out of kids. And as you say, if life is a journey, if education is a journey, we obsess around these narrow definitions of a destination and fail to look at what is learned in the journey. And these kids, as you say, I mean, I used to say it's far better than I could. They have learned so much in taking on a challenge like that and pushing themselves to, to accomplish something they're proud of. And they suddenly realize why it's important to learn how to write well, why it's important to be able to problem solve creatively and based on a critical analysis of what the real issues are. So they're learning all these critical skills. It gets at the what really drives education, right? Which is what would drive the college board crazy? What would drive state legislators crazy? What would drive Bill Gates crazy about what you just described? It would be, we can't compare kids in Fairbanks to kids in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to kids in Rochester, New York, because your kids are doing very creative, different things. It's not going to look at all like what kids in other places do and shouldn't. But, you know, but, but it's real and it's authentic and it's tied to their community in many cases. And so, so I, I, in my book, I draw out this distinction where, where I say naively a decade ago, I used to think the purpose of school was to develop human potential. And now I see because of our policies, the purpose of school is to rank human potential on these artificial measures that give outsized advantage to the affluent. And if that's what school is all about, ranking kids on their ability to do something that a machine can do better than them instantly, error-free, and increasingly for free. You know, if, if that's what it's all about, pushing kids to do what a machine already does better, I mean, bless us, right? I mean, we are sending those kids into adult life so unprepared. And then you just take what you just described, where kids are unleashed on problems. They have a voice in defining, pursuing solutions and approaches that they create that they deeply believe are important. And it just begs the question, why isn't that the heart and soul of education in America? And, and why would we stand by and say it should be anything other than that? Yeah. So the amazing part is when I did ask these kids why they were writing these things and when they had struggles and things weren't working, they continued to persevere and didn't give up because they actually had their own purpose. And there was one kid who was working on a different project. And I said, why are you, why are you doing this? And he said, well, don't I have to do it? And I said, this is your project, man. This is your thing. Like, how are you going to make the world better? And he's like, wait, so you're serious about that? I can actually do whatever I want. And I said, yeah, I mean, it's got to be safe and nobody can get hurt and all that kind of stuff. So you got to pay attention to that. And he said, oh, well, I wouldn't be doing this at all. I thought I had to do something related to school. And I was like, no, you got to do something that is actually going to make an impact. 
And so when the kid like had that opportunity, he was like, oh, well, I've got about a hundred ideas of different things that I could do. And he started running them off. And I said, yep, any one of those is good, man. You just got to figure out a way to, to make the world a better place. And it's just inspiring when you give kids that opportunity. And I get the piece about not being able to compare kids from one place to another. And my big problem with that is that the kids are going to be compared no matter what in some other way. I mean, that's, that's how life is. And so if we can at least, if we can at least guarantee that there's some amount that they're going to walk out with. And what I found every time I do something out of the box like this, the kids learn way more than what we ever would have expected them to learn when we do it this way, when we trust them to, to actually do it. Cause you know what? It's actually fun to learn. People enjoy learning. It's not like it's drudgery, but everybody hates school because school is drudgery. So what other ways can we use to measure that aren't these standardized tests that just fit in a nice little box? How else can we measure so that those needs of somebody else to compare kids with others can, can still be used? Or is that crazy talk? I don't think it's crazy talk. And I'll offer a couple different perspectives on this. I mean, first, I don't think we have particular difficulty assessing the quality of someone's work, particularly if it's an area we know something about. So if, you're, if you've got a relative degree of expertise in writing, I, I think it's pretty easy for somebody who understands good writing to assess, you know, at a course level, whether a student's writing is great or good or okay or really not there. You know, so on a micro to micro basis, an informed adult assessing the work of an aspiring student we don't have a real issue in, in assessment there. And, and I think you find that in interviews, you know, for jobs. You know, I, I think most employers feel pretty confident that when somebody sits across the desk from them and they have a chance to talk to them about things they've accomplished, they can reach a pretty informed discussion or conclusion about whether this, this is a candidate who does excellent work or not. I think the real challenge in assessment is when we try to boil it all down to one number. You know, it, it's, it's like, that's where we run into problems. And so it's not so much that we can't assess it. It's that these bureaucrats, the people at the top of the education pyramid, want it to be incredibly convenient for them to, to kind of look at rates of progress. Or these college admissions officers that will say, sure, we can afford to spend millions of dollars a year to mail out brochures to get more people to apply to our college so we can reject them and look more selective. I mean, that's an expenditure we can justify. Yeah. But we can't we can't add three more admissions people to look at real portfolios of work. You know, in my book, I talk about what New Hampshire did, which I think is a really encouraging approach to an assessment framework that worked in that state quite effectively, where basically the people at the top, Jenny Berry, Commissioner of Education, Tom Raffio, uh, School Board Superintendent, Maggie Hassan, at the time the governor, trusted teachers. Tell us how you'd like to be assessed. What's an accountability framework you think makes sense? And they just laid out portfolios of real work, you know, by grade level, by subject area, and said these would be four and eighth grade student examples of excellent writing, good writing, adequate writing. And then ask teachers at that grade level in those subjects, hold your students accountable to those portfolios. And then they had an audit system during the summer where they'd randomly pick subsets of portfolios and have teachers come together and critique. School board members could drop in and look at it. Legislators could drop in and look at it. So it had some checks and balances. You know, it can be done. 
you know, and it, it's, it's a different way to do it. But at the end of the day, you know, and when I traveled across New Hampshire, these teachers felt so trusted and respected. And, and a lot of people say, well, teachers don't want to be held accountable. I don't find that to be the case. Me neither. I think they want to be held accountable to a standard that makes sense. I think they want to be held accountable to something that they can help inform and guide. And I think they want to be held accountable to something that advances the interests of their kids. And so when somebody comes along, like a state legislator or like, you know, Bill Gates, you know, with the Common Core Drive, when, when somebody comes along and says, no, we know best what you should be held accountable to, you have no voice in it. You, you often don't get any feedback from it to make you better in your practice. And we're going to dump a bunch of assessments on you at the exact same time we tell you you've got to do everything different. Do, do we blame teachers for taking issue with that? I don't. I, I think they've got every right to say this doesn't make sense. But we do a lot of that in school. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sensitive to it, right? Because I'm not an educator. I'm a business guy by background. Many business people have made a mess of education. But, but I feel like, you know, having had a chance to meet with and visit a lot of teachers and kind of have a degree of, some degree of understanding of what their, their daily life is like, I kind of feel like I've got an obligation to speak out on their behalf. And I try to do that. Maybe not as effectively as I could, that's for sure. But I feel like if more of us who aren't educators don't start saying we need to trust our experts, and by the way, our experts are the people in the classrooms, they are the people in our schools, you know, who is? I mean, you know, like, otherwise, we just let people slide by with more of the, the same failed accountability metrics we've had for 25 years with nothing to show for it, by the way. Yeah, nothing to show for it at all. Or, or at least nothing positive to show for it. I think we have a lot to show for it. We've, we've driven a lot of teachers out of the profession. The pipeline is, is shriveled up in a lot of places. We've ill-prepared lots of students. There's plenty to show for these accountability me- measures that we've, we all rushed into. You know, the no child left behind. I mean, I would say that the people on the no excuses side have the best three to four letter, you know, or even two letters say, you know, like no excuses, no child left behind, race to the top. They are great at the phrases and just terrible at the ideas. And, you know, but I think it's time to, to put those out to pasture. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ted Dindersmith. Uh, next week, we're going to talk more with him about how to actually change schools. And I really enjoyed talking with him. He is a smart man, and I'm grateful for being able to learn from him. And thank you so much for listening to Transformative Principle and look forward to chatting with you next week. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. 
Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.